So one of the times in my life that I felt the most uh, worthless <laughs> it was a couple of years ago. Um, my wife and I were supposed to go to Virginia to see her father, and um, we had just found out a couple of weeks before that that her, her dad had dementia, and it was a pretty emotionally draining time for my wife. Add on to the emotional drainage of this issue with her dad was this, uh, just the physical fatigue. Uh, my oldest son was, was still young, she was breastfeeding, and she was constantly tired from the constant demand of mothering. So she was tired physically and emotionally, and we were going to go to Virginia to see her father after Christmas, and I knew that I could really not do a lot to change the situation. Um, one of us had to do the breastfeeding, it wasn't going to be me. Um, and she had so much on her mind mentally and emotionally about her, her, her dad. So I said, the, the best thing I can do is to drive her to Virginia. I'll take that one on the chin, I'm a decent driver, and um, we had planned on driving. So we get the car, and I just had to make one quick stop. I had to stop by this school to help move these metal risers, these big steel risers, to outside so the company could come pick them up. So I met somebody here uh, who's going to help me. He was about 10 years younger than I was. I was trying to keep up with him on my way out the aisle, down that aisle right there. It felt like, as I was carrying these big steel risers, I just felt like someone punched me. And I looked around, like, who hit me? Uh, and I hit one knee, I felt like I lost all the air in my stomach, and I realized that I just threw my back out. Now, when you're young, you can just stand back up. <laughs> I tried to stand back up, and I kept going backwards. I was like, oh, that's... My back ceased to have any uh, stability. And I was like, yo, I'm supposed to get in the car and be in the car for like seven hours, like now. I knew there was no way in the world I'd be able to sit still in the car for seven hours. I was in a lot of pain, and I called one of those teledocs, and they gave me a prescription, and I picked up the prescription, and on the label, it has in big letters, do not drive, do not operate heavy machinery, do not make any serious decisions. Um, I don't know what the name is, what it was, um, they were muscle relaxers, uh, I believe the prescription name is Uwe. It was that was the name of the drug because that's what it made me feel like. Uh, I took one pill and I said, you know what? At least I can stay awake and be supportive. I sat in the car, put my seatbelt on, looked at my wife, and was just like, "We're gonna get there." You know, I'm gonna take a nap for like a half hour max. And I woke up in Virginia. And when I woke up, my wife was just staring at me. And I never really felt more just like helpless the entire time to change anything. Like in my brain, as we were driving down, I kept on thinking to myself, Jordan, get up. Jordan, wake up. Jordan, wake up. Do something. At least do anything to be helpful. And I just felt like absolutely helpless. There was nothing I can do. Now, unfortunately, that story in some ways is a metaphor for my life. I have found myself in a number of situations that I really wanted to do something. I wanted to change something in my life or in someone else's life, and I just really felt helpless. This past week, uh, my son, my, my youngest son, was sick. He had a stomach bug, and it's really a helpless feeling to watch one of your kids be sick. So my wife, she, had been spend, she spent the night you know, awake with my son, and the next morning I said, you know what? You know, I'm, I'm a very active dad. So I went over to him. I said, you know, how can I help? He said, bring me mommy. And I was like, all right. 
Good talk. Good talk. And I just had to sit on the sidelines and watch my, my wife re-engage uh, with him. So many times where you want to do something and you just feel helpless. Other times it's much more serious, though, to be perfectly honest. One of the uh, distinct realities of my life is that I get invited into the highs and the lows of people's lives. And there are some times where I'm sitting with someone and, man, what they have going on in their life is just heavy. And sometimes I sit there and I'm just feeling helpless, like, Lord, I want to say something that's helpful, but there's not really anything to say. I want to do something. I want to strategize. I want to help see how we can navigate this situation for improvement. And sometimes there's nothing to say and there's, and there's nothing to do. And I'm just sitting there feeling helpless. Other times, it's the national things that are going on around us with the, the mass shootings in California on um, the Lunar New Year and the uh, recent murder of Tyre Nichols in, in Memphis by the police. And you see these things and you're like, Lord, again? I mean, how, how often are we going to have another mass shooting and another conversation and another, another police brutality? And we're just going to keep on having these conversations over and over again. It feels like we're just going in circles and nothing is changing. And I just kind of feel, feel, feel helpless. But it's not just national conversations. It's also my own life. When I look at my own inconsistency, the things that I say I would be doing by now that I'm not doing or not doing with the regularity that I wish I was, when I see my own immaturity, the things about me that I wish I could change, and I look in the mirror and I, sometimes I just feel helpless to change it. Now, I know I'm not alone. I know that there are situations that all of us feel and face, storms and circumstances that you cannot overcome. What would be the, the greatest obstacle that you are facing right now? Is there a storm or a circumstance that you feel like, man, I want to change it, but there's just nothing I can do about it. Now, for us today, I want to walk us through a portion of Scripture in, in the book of John. As we're in uh, our series, Jesus Is, and it is a it's a pretty familiar text for people who have been around church for a little bit, but it is a phenomenal Scripture that allows us to see what do you do when you're in a situation where the circumstances are just bigger than you and you cannot overcome them, and how does your faith play a role in that? So, it's in John 11. We're going to start in verse 1. It says, Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sister sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. Really briefly, uh, so this scripture is... Acquaint, making us acquainted with the people in the story, right? So this is not a text where Jesus is with strangers. This is not a text where Jesus is with people who are against him. This, this is a text that Jesus is interacting with people that he loves. Oftentimes in the, in the Bible, you'll see Jesus talking to these religious rulers, these Pharisees who are trying to catch him out there in a trap, but Jesus is with his people. Mary and Martha were disciples of Jesus. They sat at his feet and learned from him. Lazarus, as it describes, is the one that Jesus loved. So I want you to hear that because I want you thinking this. Jesus, this is what you allow in the lives of people that you love. So verse 4 says, When Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, 
he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Now, if you're keeping score at home, you're like, all right, it was making sense. But Jesus, make it make sense. You love these people. Yes. Great. You hear somebody is sick. Yes. You heal people. That's what I do. And then I stayed here for two more days. Make it make sense. Jesus stays for two days. um, And a lot of people have talked about this being one of the most confusing aspects of, of Jesus. And certainly you know this in your own life that it's felt like God has placed an intentional delay in your life, that you've prayed, you've asked God to do something in your life, and it almost can feel like God is deliberately taking his sweet old time. What was going on here in this, in this text? Why did Jesus delay for two more days? Now, I really want to caution us against reading scripture in snippets, because if you read it in snippets, you might come to the wrong conclusion about what Jesus was actually doing here Uh, And some have felt that his delay until Lazarus died was actually cruel, and it was was heartless. But if you look at these days, uh, you'll see what is actually happening. So let's reconstruct it a little bit. On the first day, as Lazarus is getting worse, the sisters sent a message to Jesus. Now, this was before the days of iMessage, and it wasn't like you can just, you know, send somebody a, a, a text about what was going on. The sisters sent a delegation to Jesus, and it took time for them to get to Jesus. So if you look at this in the four-day slot, um, it's very likely that when Jesus arrives, if when Jesus arrived, that Lazarus had already been dead for four days, because that's what the scripture tells us later in the chapter, it's likely that Lazarus died as the messengers were on the way to get to Jesus. So by the time that Jesus got the message that Lazarus is sick, he was already dead. And Jesus knew that. So why does Jesus then stay? Jesus stayed there because he didn't want any doubt that what he was going to do was a real resurrection. That he didn't want anybody to get it twisted and confused that Jesus got there and Lazarus was kind of sick. And um, most, of, most of the book of John actually is written to confirm Jesus' divinity. So in a lot of circles, in theological circles, they call this the Trinity, that Jesus is not just God's representative. He's not just um, a prophet or a teacher. Jesus is God in the flesh. And Jesus, all throughout the book of John, does these miracles to show people, yo, I am not just another teacher. I don't just have a couple of good sermons here and there, but I am God in the flesh, and I'm going to prove it to you by doing these, uh, these miracles. So Jesus stays and um, for two more days so that there would be no doubting uh, about the nature of the miracle. So I want to back up a little bit to verse 4, though, because Jesus has a pretty ridiculous explanation of the reason for this illness. And he says, this sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. If you're, again, reading this in snippets, you might be tempted to think that Jesus is insensitive to real agony and suffering. So I don't know if you've been around somebody who is like really sick and doing poorly and the level of desperation you feel. And the last thing you want is a spiritual platitude being placed on your real need and real desire for something to change. So if you read through this too quickly, you might think that Jesus is just putting a spiritual saying on top of it, but he's not. Uh, Later in this chapter, you see in verse 35 that when Jesus arrives and meets Mary and Martha and he sees them weeping, the shortest and most memorable scripture in all of the Bible says, 
Jesus wept. Jesus met their tears with his tears. And Jesus will meet your tears with, with his tears. So it's not just putting a spiritual band-aid on top of uh, their real suffering, but it is meant to show us something. That sometimes God gets the glory out of showing up in our lives and he will not get the glory. It will not be clear to everybody that this is truly from God as long as the situation is just kind of like mediocre and it could have been improved with uh, human means. So in my time as a pastor, there have been times over the last eight years at Renaissance where I had been in conversations and I left and I called my wife on the way home. And I said, babe, yo, if God doesn't do something in this situation, there's, there's a 0% chance that something good is going to come out of this. And sometimes I have had my mind blown that God has actually answered our prayers and I've seen lives turn around. I've seen people who I was convinced that their life was going down a horrendous direction that they come up and say, you know what, I don't know what happened, but I was praying and this just hit me and they do a 180. And I've seen God do it in my life. I've seen God do it in people's lives. As a matter of fact, if you read through this scripture and you look at different theological concordances, you see that every single person, every single person who comes to real faith in Jesus, it is a resurrection. Scripture doesn't say that one day you, you heard a message and it made sense and you decided to become a Christian. Scripture says that you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And there's an awakening that needs to happen for everybody who really places their faith in Christ. And it's not something you can do on your own. It's that God raises us from death to life. And God is glorified in every scenario, whether spiritual or physical um, or emotional, where, where a situation turns on a dime because of God. Now, what I want you to do with this, two things. If you find yourself in a situation like that, I want you to keep on praying. But also, I want us to be cautious because I don't want us thinking that every single situation in our lives that are difficult will automatically mean that God is going to show up for us and resurrect it in a way that we want him to resurrect it. Because Jesus says something else in this verse that this is for the glory of God. And he's pointing to something that is something that I don't always think about when my life is going through difficulty. And it's this, that our lives, your life, my life, is meant to be lived for the glory of God. Now, here's a reality about me that might be true for me. That might be true for you as well. I don't really want the glory of God in my life. I want my life to go the way my life is going. Let me talk to this side, because y'all not being honest. <laughs> When you're in a difficult situation, one of the last things I'm thinking about, in my natural sense, on my own, one of the last things I think about is how will God get the glory out of this? Because quite frankly, I don't care. I want God to fix it the way that God needs to fix it. Now, this doesn't mean that your life needs to be miserable for God to get the glory, but sometimes the way that God will get the glory through your life is through your patient endurance and holding on to God's unchanging hand, even if the situation doesn't change. I think about uh, a man named John the Baptist, and he was called John the Baptist, not because he wasn't John the Methodist or John the Presbyterian, <laughs> but because his ministry and his life was spent baptizing people, and he was the one who baptized Jesus. And John the Baptist was thrown in prison because of his commitment to truth. He told Herod, the man in power that day, that Herod was doing wrong things, he, uh, and John the Baptist confronted him, and he, it, his 
telling Herod the truth got him thrown in prison. Now, Herod, I mean, John the Baptist sends word to Jesus that he's locked up, and Jesus knows that he's in prison, and John the Baptist's life does not end in his own glory. As a matter of fact, it actually ends with his execution. Sometimes what God does in your life, sometimes the way God gets glory through your life is through the miraculous, that God turns things around. But other times, God gets the glory through us being faithful in difficult times. So we should take this as a reminder that all of our lives are meant to bring God the glory. Now, for those of you who are new and you're new to faith and you're like, well, that just doesn't sound right. Like, why would I live my life for God's glory? Think about it like this. Scripture says your life is like a vapor. It's here one day and it's gone the next. If God's glory is not what you want to live for, then like, does it make sense to live for your own life and your own glory? One day, all of us are going to be gone and they're going to eat potato salad at our funerals. And depending on who made it, they might not even eat it. And then on the way home, life is going to continue. And for a very small group of people who are very close to you, they will really miss you and carry your memory forever. But then they're going to die one day. And then they're going to be explaining you to your great-great-grandkids. And one day we're all going to be forgotten. You know, one of the biggest gifts we have at my my family's house in Virginia are are pictures of some of our, our ancestors. And one of the photos is of Spencer Jameson, and he was my grandmother's like great-grandfather. And it goes all the way back to right before the emancipation. And you know, my grandmother and everybody had to explain to us who he is. We don't know anything about him. And we're trying to show pictures to my kids. But his parents and his parents before that, we don't, I don't even know who they are. How many generations until you're completely forgotten? Most sociologists say it's about three or four generations until nobody thinks of you anymore. So would you live your life just for yourself? Or should you live your life for something greater? Someone greater who is eternal, who loves us, who cares for us, and is working all things out for the common good of those who love the Lord. Um, So Jesus' explanation that this is for the glory of God is meant to challenge us to rethink and reframe and to give us additional prayers that we could be praying when we find ourselves in helpless situations. Lord, I I want you to get the glory out of this. It's a difficult prayer to pray. It's a very difficult prayer to pray, but I think that God is honored when we pray that. So as the scripture continues, I'm going to jump down to verse 20. We get a very honest response from Mary and Martha. It says, as soon as Mary, as Martha, excuse me, heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. So let me give you a little bit of context for this. They tight. Mary was like, yo, you go. I'm chilling. Like, if I see Jesus, well, he, he's going to catch some hands right now. Because he waited. He took so long. And they knew he took an extra long time. They knew how long the journey was supposed to take, and he took extra time. Verse 21 says, then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now, I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So they have a very honest response to Jesus's delay in their life. And their first inclination is what I think I'm very tempted to believe all the time is that, Jesus, if you would have done something sooner, my life wouldn't be in this situation. If you would have showed up like I asked you to show up, I wouldn't be here in this situation. And they still remain somewhat hopeful that things might change, but not a lot. 
You know, one of the complexities about relationships, whether a relationship with God or with other people, uh, Steve Cuss, an author, uh, once said it like this, two ways relationships get into trouble. Number one, unspoken expectations. A lot of times, I think if we're honest, the expectations that we have of God, um, we haven't even spoken them out loud, uh, not even to ourselves half of the time, but we expect God to move in a certain way. And when God doesn't move that, that way in that timing, we think something is wrong. Here's one of the biggest expectations. God, because you did it for them like that, you have to do it for me like that. Unspoken expectations are one of the things that will really truly rob any relationship. And the second one is the meanings, the meaning we make out, what, out of what we don't know. So we love to fill in the gaps. We make a lot of meaning out of stuff that we just don't know. Someone doesn't text you back in four minutes and you already have a whole story in your head. Like, how's everything going with so-and-so? It was, it was straight, you know what I'm saying? I texted him and he hit me back. It's like, yo, he was in the dentist getting a root canal. Relax, like, he, he, you know, relax, wait a little bit. With God also, we make a lot of meaning out of the things that we don't know. God waits and we interpret. God delays and we fill in the blanks that God must be cruel or indifferent or God doesn't answer prayer. And God is just being patient and waiting in our lives. So we see the, the nature of their um, response and the ways that relationships get into trouble. But then Jesus responds to them with some promises. And this is the series that we're in and the statement that Jesus makes. It says, he says, your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. Now, Jesus' promise to her is even better than a resurrection. It's not even focused on her immediate situation anymore. He's taking her eyes off of her situation. He's putting it on him. He's not promising what he's going to do. He's, he's promising her who he is. So the first thing I think the Lord wants us to get when we read this text and to think about who Jesus is, is that the first thing the Lord wants to do is to take your eyes off of your situations, off of your circumstances, and put it back on him. I love that song that we were just singing, Jesus be the center of our lives. And I was convicted about how many times Jesus is on the outskirts of my life. And I invite him into the center just when the situation gets beyond my control, and I gently excuse him out until it gets bad again. Jesus says that he is the resurrection. She attempted to push this to the last day, and he said that he himself was the resurrection, and wherever he is, there is life. So one of the things that I think we can get from this is that it's never too late for God to move or for, for good to come out of a situation. Think about it. Jesus delays. In his delay, Lazarus is good and dead. Scripture says he had been dead for four days by the time that Jesus shows up. Jesus planned this intentionally so that his glory would be displayed and so that we would have a better understanding of who he is and what it's like to be in relationship with him. You know, it reminds me of a story of a man named Adoniram Judson. Uh, Adoniram Judson was a missionary in India, and his life reads like one of those lives of where things go from bad to worse, to worse, to worse, to worse, to worse. 
Like, you keep on reading his story thinking that something is going to get better, and it never does. It's like watching the Knicks in the season. It just gets down and down and down and down. And this man's story was filled with so much suffering, and all of the attempts that he wanted, all of the things that he wanted to do with his life, none of them really panned out. And if you just looked at his life, you might be tempted to think that he was a failure. But after he died, you see that what he was building was not a skyscraper, he was just building a foundation for someone else. We were in this foundations course. Uh, now we have our last one on Tuesday. It's been an amazing time for us. And one of the things I've been thinking about is this concept of a foundation. You need a really amazing foundation to build a skyscraper. And sometimes people can work for years just on the foundation. And from the outside looking in, it doesn't look impressive at all. All it looks like is a, a three feet thing. But you have no idea how deeply they had to dig down and how strong it is and how much it will allow for a skyscraper, one world trade to be built on top of it. One of the problems with our lives is that sometimes God is building a skyscraper with your life or he's building a skyscraper with someone else's life. But other times, God is building a foundation. We don't want to be the foundation. We want to be the skyscraper. Here's what Adoniram Judson's son, Edward, said about his life after he had died and after so much ministry and so much good things happened after his death because of his work, because of his suffering. Here's what uh, his son said. Suffering and success go together. If you are succeeding without suffering, it is because others before you have suffered. If you are suffering without succeeding, it is that others after you may succeed. You know, if, you, if you're taking what Jesus says seriously about living your life for God's glory, it might just mean that you are trusting in God and holding onto his hand, regardless of what he wants to build with your life, whether it's a foundation or a skyscraper. Of course, we'd all sign up for the skyscrapers. Who doesn't want something big and beautiful with our lives? You know, when I think about uh, Renaissance, um, there's a, a pastor who labored in Harlem for decades before we started. And their church is no longer around in a physical form. And some people might look at his church and say, oh, it was a failure. They, they tried this church plant and it didn't work. But they would have no idea that that was the foundation from which Renaissance grew out of. Some of our earliest leaders, the DNA of our church came not because Jordan was great at meeting people, it came through the seeds of what had been planted through another person. His suffering led to our quote unquote success. And I think that we're just too reductionistic. We just think of our lives too immediate, too, too us-centered. And if Jesus is going to be the resurrection in our life, we have to allow him to resurrect things sometimes and trusting him that he's going to bring life out of something and we might not be the ones to see it. You might not see the result of your faithfulness. Think about that. You might go to your grave never having seen the result of your faithfulness to God. And you have to trust. What is faith for you then? Faith for you is trusting that God, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And that whatever you put in his hands, it's going to grow. Whatever good effort you give to him, he's going to bless it and grow it and bring life out of it. Sometimes we get to see that life and sometimes we don't. So I'm going to bring it all together for us. What does it mean that Jesus is the resurrection for us? It means a number of things. First, I, we talked about this a little bit. It means that God's plans take time to develop. Jesus was not in a rush. 
Because he was the resurrection, not just the healer, Jesus did not need to rush. Now, certainly you have seen this in your own life, but all throughout the Bible, you see that God is never in a rush and that God's plans take time to develop. You see this in the story of a man named Joseph. Joseph had this dream while he was a young man that God was going to do amazing things through his life. After he has this dream, he makes the mistake of telling his brothers what was going to happen. They get jealous, sell him off into slavery, and he spends the next number of decades enslaved and in prison, almost executed, going through horrible times, only for decades later for the dream that God gave him to actually come through. Now, God was true the, the entire time, but sometimes... God's plans take time to develop. Jesus let Lazarus stay in that tomb for four days on purpose because God's plans by design take time for, to develop. What does this mean for you? This means you should not abandon faithfulness to God in the, in the meantime. Don't, don't jump off the boat too quickly. One of my favorite scriptures that I quoted to a number of people in Galatians 6, it says that, let us not get tired let us not get tired of doing well, of doing good, for we will reap a harvest at the proper time if we do not give up. God's plans take time to develop. And what he's calling us to do in the meantime is to not get tired of doing good things because we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Number two, I love this piece right here. It means if Jesus is the resurrection, what we can extract from this text is that God's plans do not need human awareness. God does not need to, you to be aware of what he's doing for him to be working. You might think that God is absent, God is distant, God is uh, not answering prayer, and you have no idea all of the bricks that are being laid right now. That God is holding you all the way down, and one day, you might wake up and see a resurrection. And you might think that it came out of nowhere, but it means that God does not need you to be aware of what he's doing for him to be working. Mary and Martha had no clue of what Jesus was planning. And oftentimes, you and I have no clue of what God is doing in our lives. The things that we think that God is, needs to do by a certain time, uh, I tend to get really anxious when I don't know what is next. Uh, when I don't know what's happening next, I get pretty anxious. Um, and I have a couple of prayer requests right now where I'm like, Lord, I, I need this. I need to be more aware that your plans, your goodness, your activity, your resurrection power, you don't need me to be on the know. I said this last week at our uh, foundations class. God values your transformation, or God values you being transformed more than he values you being informed. We would love to know everything that God is doing in our lives, but God knows that you having more information does not lead to your transformation. So number one, God's plans take time to develop. Number two, God's plans do not need human awareness. Number three, I love this one. God's plans don't require good probability to be trustworthy. Most of the way I see life naturally is that I look at all the things and the obstacles in front of me. I think about all my options and I say, how likely is it to go well? What do we see in this text? There was a 0% chance that anything good was going to happen when Lazarus was dead, dead, four days in the grave. He was gone. He was dead. He was stinking, as scripture says later in that chapter. What do we see? God's plans do not need good, good probability to be true. When I was in college, I took an economics class and we did a bunch on statistics and I got a D in that joint. That statistics, that's when I started reading more books. I'm like, this is not for me. I need to be reading and writing some stuff. Statistics are there 
and they're helpful in economies and other things to help you predict the future. Unknowingly, we drag in an economic model to our relationship with God. We say, Lord, here are the statistics, here are the chances of this happening, but let me be the first to tell you right now, God's plans do not need good probability to be true. Jesus, if he is the resurrection, he is the power, and he doesn't need anything else um, for it to work, for his plans to work, for his plans to come to fruition. Now, this is not to say that you shouldn't do wise things in the meantime. You should continue to do the wisest thing that you should do in front of you, right? But this, this, this does mean that God's plans don't require good probability to be trustworthy. And the last one is that um, God calls us to active trust. God calls you to active trust. Let's read verses 38 through 44. It says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said to Martha. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there's already a stench, because he had been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me. But because of this crowd standing here, I said this, so they may believe you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. Now check this out, y'all. This is an amazing, tense moment. In old times, in ancient Judea, when someone died, there was no funeral home, there was no embalming fluid. Like, if a person died, it was a horrendous stench, and you kept them in a tomb on purpose so that the stench doesn't leak out into the community. And what Jesus tells them to do is to remove the stone. Think about this. He's calling them to participate in the miracle that he's going to do. He wants their obedience even though he's the one with the power. And it says, before Jesus did anything... He called them to active trust. He called them to remove the stone. And check this out. Listen, they would have looked foolish if Jesus didn't show up. That's what active trust is. Active trust is you behaving in a way that if God does not show up to his word, I'm going to look like an idiot because I'm going to be the one that removed the stone and just let this smell out for the whole community for everybody to, to witness my dead brother. And they did it. I think about the agony of active trust, that unless God comes through for me, I'm going to look foolish. Now, I don't know everybody, and I don't know all your stories, but I do know that there are moments in life where God calls us to active trust. I want to say this gently. There is a difference between a verbal confession and a life commitment. There's a huge difference between a verbal confession, I believe that Jesus is Lord, and a life commitment, that I'm going to lean my life against his life, and I'm going to do whatever he tells me to do, and if he doesn't show up, I'm going to look really foolish. I'm going to be the one that's out. So we want to be really careful that we are people who can hear to us what are Jesus' invitations to us and to move in that direction. Now, active trust is incredibly difficult. When I think about the scenarios in my life where I'm waiting for God to show up, it is painful. 
And this is why you need community around you, because by yourself, left to yourself, if you're trying to follow all that God is calling you to do, you're not going to be able to do it on yourself. And this is why DNA groups are not just a fun activity that we do for a couple of weeks, something that you can take or you can leave. But you and I need other people to help us be all that God is calling us to be. We need encouragement. We need prayer. We need clarity. We need people to be with us, to push us, to pray with us, to encourage us when we are down. Because make no mistake about it, active trust is a very difficult thing. So I want to close us today in a moment of prayer. But before I pray, I want to give us about 10 seconds of silence for you to think about, uh, are there any areas that God is calling me to trust him to remove the stone? Are there any stones that God is calling me to move in my life and to trust that he's going to show up for us because he is the resurrection? Jesus, you are the resurrection. You don't just have power, you are power. You don't just have love, you are love. You don't just have grace, you are grace. You don't just have truth, you are truth. And Jesus, there might be times in our life, and that time might be right now, where you are calling us to move to a life commitment towards you. And Jesus, I want to have the courage to do that. Give me the courage to do that where my hands are weak. Give me people around me to help push me where my legs don't want to move in that direction. Jesus, I want you to be glorified through my life. So Father, we pray right now for everybody in this room for courage, for deep, deep, deep courage. Father, for those of this, in this room who need to make the commitment to follow you for the first time, Lord, may they make that step in obedience towards you trusting that you are the one who is the resurrection. You are the power. Yours is the kingdom, the glory, forever and ever. Amen and amen.